you turn with me, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah spent 12 years in Jerusalem rebuilding the walls of the city and rebuilding the spiritual lives of the people. And at the conclusion of those 12 years, in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, he returned to the king's palace. And after being there for an undefined amount of time, verse 6 tells us that he asked leave from the king and he came back to Jerusalem. And when he returned, Nehemiah discovered some problems. He discovered that the people of Israel had not fared real well without his leadership. He found that they had wandered from God. He found that they had compromised in their commitment to the Lord. And Nehemiah saw the evidence of that compromise in four areas, and there are four areas that we still find ourselves compromising in today. The first area was the house of God in verses 4 to 9. Nehemiah came to the house of God and he found that Tobiah the Ammonite was living there. Eliashib the high priest cleared the things of God out of one of the rooms and he moved the things of Tobiah in. And the reason is given to us at the end of verse 4 because he was related to Tobiah. Now Eliashib the high priest was serving God effectively when we read about him in chapter 3. He was building the sheep gate and he was consecrating the walls. But something happened to Eliashib. He made some little compromises, and then he made some more little compromises, and pretty soon he was making a big compromise. He allowed the foremost enemy of God to get a little closer and a little closer, and pretty soon he was in the family. He let down his guard just a little bit, and then a little more, And pretty soon, he was moving Tobiah's couch and his easy chair and his microwave into the temple of God. Someone said to me this week, I've got an unsafe friend at work, and we're playing racquetball together, and we're eating out together, and we're spending a lot of time together. Should I be spending this much time with him? And I said, well, sure you should, if you are influencing him for God. But the fact that you're asking me that question indicates that you probably are not. You see, relationships are never static. They're always moving somewhere. And the question in that situation is, am I an influencer or am I an influencee? Sometimes we move into a relationship with good intentions and then we lose the focus of our mission. And oftentimes we find ourselves compromising because of that. 1 Corinthians 15.33 warns us that bad company corrupts good morals. James 4.4 says, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you are not influencing your friends for Christ, then they are influencing you. If you are not influencing your friends for Christ then you are compromising. And the little compromises lead to bigger compromises. That was the case with Eliashib. And when Nehemiah sees that Tobiah has an apartment in the temple, he acts decisively. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, Oh my! He doesn't call together a town meeting. He doesn't go to check the terms of Tobiah's lease. Verse 8 tells us he goes in... He takes Tobiah's household goods and he throws them out of the temple. And then he cleanses the area and he moves back in the things of God. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are the temple of God. And if we look closely, we might find a room 
in our lives that God isn't giving access to. We might find a room in our lives that is occupied by the enemy. It may be a small room. It may be a remote room. It may be a room that no one else knows about, but God knows, and you know, and you know that you need some spiritual spring cleaning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes and says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a, with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You are the temple of God. You are not your own. You don't own yourself. Those rooms are not yours to fill up. They belong to God because He purchased you. And what was the purchase price? The most valuable commodity in all the universe, the blood of His only Son. He bought you. He owns you. He came to reside in you. He has made your body His temple. And what's the purpose of a temple? To worship and glorify God. And so He says, since I bought you, I want you to glorify God in your bodies. And that's every room. The church room of your life, the business room of your life, the entertainment room of your life. You see, glorifying God is, do, is not just one of the things that I do. It should be all of what I do. It is my main purpose in life. In fact, when Paul was describing how we should make choices in our lives, he said this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, that makes decision-making pretty easy, doesn't it? I just say, which decision will bring the most glory to God? And that should be the purpose and the goal of my life. You see, if you're going to sit down and watch a movie and you have to say, uh, Lord, could you, could you leave the room because you're probably not going to enjoy this that much. If you're going to have a business transaction and you have to say, uh, Excuse me, Lord, but would you mind stepping out for a moment while I make this deal? You see, if I have to make those kind of choices, then that tells me that I have got rooms in my life that God doesn't have access to. I have got rooms in my life where God is not being glorified. You see, that's the essence of Ephesians 5.18 when Paul says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let Him have every area of your life. Let Him fill every room in your life. You see, I can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if, if I've got the furniture of Tobiah in one of my rooms. If I've got it reserved for the enemy, I can't let him fill me. And that's the issue. First evidence of compromise that Nehemiah found when he came back to Jerusalem was the house of God. And I wonder this morning if he examined the house of God today, which is your life, I wonder what he would find. I wonder if he would find compromise. I wonder if he would find the enemy's furniture there. If so, we need to do some house cleaning. Second area that he saw was the service of God, and that's in verses 10 to 14. On his trip to the temple, Nehemiah not only discovered something that should not have been there, which was Tobiah and his furniture, he also discovered something missing that should have been there, and that was the tithes that should have been filling 
the storehouses and the Levites and the priests who should have been living off of that. You see, there was no service going on for God because the people were not giving. And once again, Nehemiah acts decisively. He doesn't say, well, giving is a personal thing. I better stay out of it. Giving is between you and God. That's your business. No. He saw that the service of God was being neglected. He knew that the people had made a commitment back in chapter 10 to give. And so Nehemiah reprimanded the officials in verse 11. He had the people bring in their tithes in verse 12. And he put a new reliable staff in charge of the storehouses in verse 13. One of the first places a spiritual decline will always show itself is in our giving. And that's where Nehemiah saw the second evidence of it in the people of Jerusalem. I wonder what he would find if he examined your giving to the service of God this morning. Would he find compromise? Would he find empty storehouses? If so, then we need to return to our giving commitment. We need to return to giving him the first fruits. Third area where Nehemiah saw compromise was in the worship of God. And that's in verses 15 to 22. Notice verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Now the Sabbath day was Saturday. It was to be a day of rest. It was one of the Ten Commandments that they were to do no work on the Sabbath day. In fact, Exodus chapter 31, along with other passages, tells us that it was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. Exodus 31, 16 says, So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel. God made a covenant with Noah. The sign was the rainbow. He made a covenant with Abraham. The sign was circumcision. He made the covenant with Israel with the law, and the sign was the Sabbath day. But it wasn't simply to be a day when they refrained from work. It was to be a day when they reflected on God. It was to be a day of worship. And prior to Nehemiah's leaving, the people had committed themselves in chapter 10 to not buy or sell anything on the Sabbath day. But when he returns, what does he find? He finds on the Sabbath day, people are treading their wine presses, loads are coming through the gates of Jerusalem, coming and going with donkeys, and men from Tyre are there selling fish and merchandise. Now, Tyre was on the Mediterranean Sea people of Jerusalem got most of their fish out of the Jordan, which would be freshwater fish. These fellows came from Tyre with seafood. And they set up their shop in Jerusalem and they sold that to the people. And they were doing that on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah looked around and he saw that the people were compromising. And what was the real issue? The real issue was materialism. They were choosing to work and make more money rather than worship God. They were choosing material wealth over spiritual wealth. Now today, we're not under the covenant of law. We're under the covenant of grace. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. And we're no longer required to keep the Sabbath day. 
In fact, the day that we gather to worship is not the seventh day, the Sabbath day. It's the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But you know, it's interesting to me, on the day that we set aside to come together for collective worship, it's interesting to me that some of us can only give God one hour out of our busy schedule. We can't give Him two. We could never think of giving Him three to actually come and worship God. We just have to squeeze out maybe an hour and we'll come and we'll worship God for that little brief time. And that's all we can give Him because we're so busy. And then what's really amazing to me is that in that hour that we give Him, we're always so sleepy. You know, it seems like 11 a.m. Sunday morning, it's just like, boy, it's nap time. You know, we just start, why, why is that? It's Sunday, I'm exhausted. Don't have anything to do. See, we take that rest seriously, I think. Literally, we come and rest. You see, any other day of the week, we're sharp at 11 a.m. In fact, I heard a report recently that they checked people's biological clocks, and they said the time that you're mentally most ready to achieve something is 11 a.m. in the morning. They didn't include the Sunday clause there in their research. See, if somebody came to you with a deal on Sunday to say you can make double profit, you would say, I'm awake. Get the visine. Here I go. See, we don't live under the law. God does not mandate that we have to carry no loads and all the restrictions in the Old Testament. He has set us free. But we have the first day of the week, most of us, set aside to worship God. And yet it's amazing to me how little we really give Him. How little time and how little little quality we really give in our worship of God. Nehemiah looked around and he saw that the people were seeking money at a time when they should have been seeking God. And so he tackles the problem. First of all, he confronts the people. If you notice the end of verse 15, it says, So I admonished them on the day that they sold food. Now, throughout Scripture, that is always the proper response. When I see someone sinning, my responsibility is to not go to someone else, but to go to that individual. That's what Nehemiah does. He goes right up to them and tells them that what they're doing is wrong. He confronted the individuals first. Secondly, he confronted the leaders, verse 17. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Now, the nobles were the prominent people in Jerusalem. They should have been correcting the problem. Instead, they were part of the problem. And so Nehemiah goes to those who have some leadership responsibility and he says, You've got a problem here. And then verse 18 He says, did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. He gives them a confrontational history lesson. Nehemiah says, haven't you learned anything from history? Don't you know that the walls we just rebuilt were torn down and burned up for the very reason that our fathers didn't keep the Sabbath day and did not keep the Sabbath year? In fact, Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 27 preached to the people of Israel prior to Nebuchadnezzar coming and destroying Jerusalem and burning the walls. And this is what he said to the people of Israel on on behalf of God. He said, if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, if you do not do it, 
Then I shall kindle a fire in its gates, and I will destroy the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. And that's exactly what God did. And so Nehemiah is looking and seeing the same pattern going on again, and he's saying, haven't you learned anything from history? Haven't you learned anything by the failure of your fathers? You're following the same pattern. And so he confronts the individuals, he confronts the leaders, and then the third step he takes is he begins to correct the problem. Verse 19, And it came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. Now you need to understand that the Sabbath day ran from our Friday evening at 6 o'clock until our Saturday evening at 6 o'clock. And so the Sabbath began in the evening. It began at 6 o'clock, and that's why it says here that prior to dark, he closed the gates. What Nehemiah did was he shut down the city for the Sabbath day. He closed all the gates. And to monitor who came and went out of the city of Jerusalem, he put his servants at those gates to make sure no loads were coming and going. People could travel through, but they couldn't carry merchandise through. They couldn't buy and sell. And so he's monitoring the situation. He closes down the city. You know what's interesting? He takes this step to stop the problem, but people will always find a way to get around the rules. Look at verse 20. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Now, what's going on here? Since they can't get in, they set up shop just outside the gate of Jerusalem and let the people come out from Jerusalem and do the buying and selling just outside the gates. So they're kind of finding a way around it. You know, if we want to sin, we usually can find a way. When we want to sin, we tend to get real creative. We don't get real creative in honoring God, but we get real creative in dishonoring God, especially when there's a dollar to be made. And that's what the people did here. We'll find a way to get around this restriction. So notice what Nehemiah does, verse 21. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. That's pretty good. Nehemiah goes out there and gets in their face of these, these foreign merchants outside the wall, and he says, you guys get out of here, and if you don't, I'm going to punch your lights out. And then I love the last phrase in verse 21. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. They got the message. He got tough with them, and they left, and they stayed away. You say, well, it sounds like Nehemiah is angry. Well, I'm sure he is. You know, we ought to get angry too about the things God gets angry about. We ought to get angry about compromise when we see it in our own lives and in the lives of others. We ought to get angry enough to wage an all-out war against it. And we ought to get angry enough to drive the very temptation of it away, not just outside the gates where we have easy access, but out of sight. And then verse 22 and I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. Nehemiah realized that this was not simply a security problem, it was a spiritual problem. So what he did was he had the Levites come, purify themselves, sanctify the Sabbath day, and then he put them on guard at the gates. So that when 
people came through and saw the Levites, it reminded them of their responsibility. It must be the Sabbath day. The Levites are on the wall. I have a responsibility to God today. It also held them to accountability because they were probably more likely to try to sneak by a servant than they would to see, slip by one of the priests who was standing there at the gate. And so Nehemiah sets it up this way. And then finally in verse 22 we read, For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of thy loving kindness. We close this section seeing Nehemiah praying. Now what's interesting to me is that if you remember the first chapter of Nehemiah, there we find that Nehemiah prayed first and acted second. In chapter 13, we find that Nehemiah acted first and prayed second. Now, what's the difference? The difference is, as I see it, in chapter 1, Nehemiah did not know the will of God. He was saying, I know there's a problem in Jerusalem. I'm willing to go. If you will open the door, I will go. And so he prayed for four months until God finally opened the door through the king of Persia and he went to Jerusalem. In chapter 13, God's will is clear. There's no question about what God's will is here. He is encountering direct disobedience to the word of God. And that calls for action. If your little child runs out in the street in front of a truck, you're probably not going to get down on your knees and pray for the Lord to protect them. You're going to race out there in the street and you're going to try to snatch them up and get them out of the way of that truck, even if it means bodily harm to you. You see, when I see my brother or sister in Christ living in disobedience, compromising in their walk with God, playing in the streets... That's not a time to pray. That's a time to act. And understand me when I say this. Sometimes prayer can be a cop-out. I may pray because I really don't want to get out there in the traffic. I may pray about a situation because I really don't like having to confront people. I may pray about a situation because I hope that if I pray long enough, maybe it'll go away. You see, there's a time to pray and there is a time to act. And when God has made a clear statement, when God has made His will known, when the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, the next step is not prayer. The next step is obedience. Jesus indicated a situation like that in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if you're presenting your offering or your altar, your, or your offering before the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, what did he say? Get up from prayer and go restore that fellowship with your brother and then come back and offer to the Lord. You see, there's a time when we may be in prayer and the Lord may be saying to us, get off your knees and act. There's a time when we may want to pray and God's already given us a clear statement of what to do and the time is a time for obedience. That was the case with Nehemiah in chapter 13. He saw spiritual compromise among the people of Jerusalem. And the third evidence of that compromise was their worship of God. I wonder what Nehemiah would find if he came today and examined our worship of God. Would he find that you've given him little or no time? 
Would he find that you sought material wealth over spiritual wealth? If so, then we need to set some new priorities. If so, then we need to run some distractions out of our city and lock the gates. Fourth place where he found compromise was the plan of God. Verses 23 to 29. Notice verse 23. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. Nehemiah looked around and he saw that the people were marrying foreign wives. Now he had already addressed this issue back in chapter 10, but it's a little bit different here because we know that Malachi was on the scene at this time preaching, and Malachi says in Malachi 2.14, you have dealt treacherously against the wife of your youth by divorcing her. So when we put that together, what was happening here was that these men in Jerusalem were looking around at the girls in Moab and Ammon and Ashdod and thinking there's some awful beautiful women over there. And they went over and they instigated a relationship and they got involved in an immoral activity and then they came back and they divorced their wives and they married these foreign women. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? What was the result of the moral compromise? Number one, their children suffered. You see it there? Verse 23, they compromised. Verse 24, the children are affected by it. And whenever there's moral indiscretion by the parents, the kids always pay the price. Verse 24 says they couldn't speak the Jewish language. Now, if they couldn't speak the Jewish language, how much of the Word of God do you think they knew? None. And if they only spoke the language of Ashdod or Moab or Ammon, who do you think they worshipped? Well, they worshipped the gods of Ashdod and Moab and Ammon. The children suffered. But not only that, their children's children would also suffer. You see, if, these, if this first generation of children didn't even speak, speak the Jewish language, then what kind of children do you think they would raise? Pagans. And what would be the future of Israel? It would be zero. You see, their actions disregarded the plan of God. God's plan for them physically was that they would not intermarry with the other nations in order to maintain a solidarity of their race. God's plan for them spiritually in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is that they would love the Lord their God with all their heart and that they would teach the Word of God diligently to their children. They had abandoned all of that at this point for their own lust. And when Nehemiah saw this, how did he respond? Verse 25, So I contended with them and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, I'd say that Nehemiah is steamed. He confronts them, and he cursed them. Now, that doesn't mean he cussed them out. If you remember back in chapter 10 and verse 29, they signed a covenant saying, we are taking on ourselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They had signed the covenant saying we will obey God. They have now broken the covenant. And so that curse is now automatically in effect. And so Nehemiah is bringing that into play as he confronts them. The curse that you brought on yourself 
is now in effect. And then also it says, he struck some of them and he pulled out their hair. That's what my dad used to do to me when I was a kid. So I said, please, Dad. Some people say this is actually in the Hebrew a reference to the beard, which would really smart. I mean, if you grab and just yank somebody's beard out, that's what Nehemiah did. He's pretty aggressive here. He's pulling them around by the hair and he's slapping them and he's saying, he's, he's saying, say uncle. You know, that's really it because verse 25 he says, swear by God you will not do this again. You know, when I read this, sometimes I think I'm a little too tactful. <laughs> sometimes I feel this way, but the New Testament gives us some guidelines that we have to depend on the Spirit of God. Nehemiah is really expressing the anger in it all, and he's, he's grabbing people and beating them and telling them, obey God, you know. It doesn't work real well, but he's doing it on this occasion. And then he gives them another confrontational history lesson. You see, the reason he's so angry is because their moral actions are affecting the future generations. And they have no concern about their children or the children that are coming. They're just concerned about themselves. And he's angry about that. And so he gives them a little lesson here in verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Solomon had it all going for him. He was the wisest man on the earth. There was no king like him. He was loved by God. In fact, when he was born in 2 Samuel 12, 25, it says that the Lord named him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. But when he became king, he got interested in women. Beautiful, rich, foreign women. And once he got started, he couldn't stop. 1 Kings 11.3 says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had 1,000 women living with him. Sounds good, huh? No comment. You know what the outcome was? Verse 26, at the end, the foreign women caused even him to sin. 1 Kings 11.4 says his wives turned his heart away after other gods. He got what he wanted. He, he followed his own desires. He accumulated women from all over the world. What was the result? He sinned against God. There was an effect on him his children, but not only that, if you'll notice what happened at the end of Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel was split at that point into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There was a whole split in the nation because of the sin of Solomon. And then he applies it in verse 27. Do we then hear about you, that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Are you going to follow in his footsteps to the same tragic end? Are you going to get to your, the end of your life like Solomon did and write vanity of vanities, all is vanity? Are you not learning from history not to follow that example? And then Nehemiah adds a footnote, verse 28 and 29, a personal one. Even one of the sons of Joadiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood 
and the Levites. When Nehemiah learns that a member of the priesthood had married a foreign woman, he drove him out. Why? Because he was a spiritual leader. And as such, he had a stricter judgment. And also, as as it mentions in these two verses, he had committed himself to a covenant with God as a priest. And he was breaking that covenant. He had made a commitment to, to marry within his own tribe and keep the lineage pure, and he had jumped out and married a foreign woman. And so Nehemiah runs him right out of the city of Jerusalem. He was disregarding the plan of God. And that's the fourth area where Nehemiah saw compromise. And I wonder what Nehemiah would find if he examined your commitment to the plan of God. Would he find that you've been faithful to your spouse? Would he find that you have eyes only for her or only for him? Would he find that you're raising up your kids in the things of the Lord? You know, it's difficult in this day. People today say, well, it's the 90s. You can't live pure in the 90s. It's just not expected today. Our culture tells us that nobody can live in a monogamous relationship in the 90s. can't be done. I was a little amused when I saw this, this uh, deal on the actor Hugh Grant, and he was caught with a prostitute. One of the magazines came out with a headline that said, Will his fans forgive him? That's kind of humorous to me, because when I read a little bit about it, I found out he'd been living with his girlfriend for eight years without being married. Well, nobody said anything about that. Nobody says anything when, when celebrities throw off relationships and have affairs and all those things. But now, he's caught with a prostitute, and we're starting to draw a moral line. It's way down here. We're saying, that, that's it. I mean, I don't know if we can go past that one. But if his fans forgive him, which apparently they have, then that's okay too. That's the society we're in. But let me remind you that God's standards are not the same as the world's standards. And God's plan is not the same as the world's plan. And if you have been following the world's plan and compromising with God's plan, then it's time for a fresh commitment. And that's what the people of God did in Nehemiah's day. Look at verse 30. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. Set them apart from the foreign things. Verse 31, And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. He arranged a mechanism for them to give to God. And then if you go back to verse 1 that we, we left behind when we started this chapter because it really falls at the end. Verse 1 says, On that day... They read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into blessing. They got out the word of God, and they read it, and they read from Deuteronomy chapter 23, and this is a quote from there telling them that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, that's not saying they couldn't enter as a convert. It's saying they couldn't enter as they were. Ruth, you remember, was a Moabitess. She was from these people, and she not only came as a convert to Judaism, but came into the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they can come just like we as Gentiles can come on God's terms, but we can't come on our own terms. 
And that's what he's saying here. And so their response in verse 3 is, so it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now what Nehemiah is doing here is he's simply taking them back to the commitment that they made in chapter 10, and he's readdressing that. If you remember in chapter 10, they made a commitment in three areas. Submission to the word, separation from the world, and support of the work. And that's what he takes them back to. He takes them back to submission to the word. In verse 1, they open the word and they hear it and they say, Aha, God has spoken. Secondly, separation from the world. They, verse 3 says, put all the foreigners out of the city. Verse 30 says, they purified themselves from anything foreign. And then thirdly, they committed themselves to support of the work. In the last verse of chapter 13, they had a mechanism now to give wood and first fruits into the temple. In closing, let me remind you that compromise is a dangerous thing. It's usually not radical disobedience. It's gradual indifference. But it ends up with the same result. And often because it's a slow process, we're the last ones to realize how far we've gone. You know, that happened with Samson. There's a little phrase at the end of a verse In Judges 16.20, and it says this, He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He walked away from God so far that when God finally left him, he didn't even notice that God was gone. Now that's a sobering verse. If you're here this morning and you're on that same path, you're compromising in the house of God by not giving Him every room, You're compromising in your service of God by not giving the first fruits. You're compromising in your worship of God by not giving Him the best of your time. You're compromising in the plan of God by not carrying out His purpose for you and your home. I would say to you this morning, before you get any further down that road of compromise, that you take seriously the admonition of Nehemiah. And that... Let's gather together today and let's throw the furniture of the enemy out of the temple. And let's fill the storehouses of God. And let's lock out all the distractions so that we can worship Him alone. And let's commit ourselves to be the husbands, the wives, the fathers, the mothers, and the children that God has called us to be. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this passage that deals with confronting sin. And Father, as we see it, we look at our own hearts in honesty and we realize that there are areas where we compromise. And Lord, I pray today in the the quietness of our heart, just You speaking to us, that we truly might surrender to You every place, every room, every area, that our lives in every way, in every form, in every act might bring You glory. Lord, I pray that you might also raise up amongst us Nehemiahs, friends like Nehemiah who love us enough to confront us and to help us in our journey together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.